Good morning, church. My name is John Roden, and I also have my wife of 50 years, Donna, sitting over there. We always sit over there about fourth row, piano side, and uh, got some more of my family, my daughter Allison Deering and her husband Jeremy. Allison's probably taught a lot of your kids over the years, and I have my beautiful granddaughters, Nina and Margaret. They're both here with us today, and Jeremy's mom, Kay. About, uh, about a month ago, one of our friends here from church called us Sale Street Lifers. And I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, but there's a lot of truth in that. I was baptized here 41 years ago, uh, before this building was even here, in the building next door that we call Building A. That was our worship center back then. Donna's been here for 58 years. She came here when she was in junior high. And so uh, I guess we are Sale Street Lifers. We've seen our, both of our kids baptized here and our granddaughters baptized here and Allison and Jeremy were married here. This is our home. This is our church home and, and we love it. We've seen a lot of things change over the years. I remember back uh, in the early times when we had about 30 different committees that ran the church and uh, I served on quite a few of those. Then we downsized to six committees. And uh, then a couple of years ago, we uh, changed to elder leadership. And I'm so happy we did. I believe we're following the, the biblical model here at Sale Street Baptist Church in the way our church is governed. We have uh, six godly men that I love dearly, who spend a lot of time and just put a lot of energy in, in serving the Lord and making sure our church is healthy. Currently, I'm uh, teaching Sunday school. I've been doing that for about 33 years now. And uh, Gary Wright and I co-teach a class that's mainly 60-year-olds and some early 70s. And we have a few young ones in there, too, to keep us, uh, keep us all young. And uh, if you don't currently have a Sunday school class and you're not serving someplace else in the church, we'd invite you to join us over in the warehouse uh, in our class. Let's go ahead and take a look at the scriptures. Oh, I did want to mention one more thing. I'm supposed to tell you everything I'm doing right now. I helped Donna with uh, uh, the Operation Christmas Child in whichever way she needs help. And then uh, also I'm on the church staff part-time. I serve as the church's accountant. I've been doing that for about 10 years now. We're going to be in Mark today in chapter 8, beginning in verse 27 and finishing in verse 38. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And P Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we give you all the praise and glory, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your written word. We thank you for Jesus, the living word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through the scripture. Lord, I pray now for Brother Jeff as he brings the message. I pray that he would be led by the Holy Spirit in all that he says, Lord. And I pray that each one of us, if we have any misconceptions, that you would correct us and that uh, we would be encouraged and we would be enthusiastic to go out and to carry on and to obey what you give to us today. Lord, I pray that you'll give us the faith and help increase our faith that we may be obedient in furthering your kingdom. And ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. John, thank you so much. We appreciate you very much, of course. And uh, we're thankful that uh, you got to read before me this morning. I wasn't sure who it was. Uh, anyway, my name is Jeff Mankins. Of course, I'm uh, one of the elders here at church. Uh, my main focus is children's ministry, family ministry. So a lot of times I'm in the back with the kids. And I was pleasantly surprised to see something this morning. It's probably not a big deal to everybody else. But I was sick the last night of VBS, so I missed. This is my teaching stand from over there. So I'm going to use it today as I preach. Anyway, there are several reasons why I love children's ministry and family ministry. Most of all, it's because that's what, uh, one of the things the Lord has called me to do uh, for many years. But also I get to work with your awesome kids. Um, I get to work with Emily Cotrere, our uh, coordinator, and all of our great volunteers, which we're very thankful for. And, and something else that's cool, um, if you have kids, you'll probably know this. We don't really play church. We teach exactly what's being taught here on Sunday mornings. We just do it on the kids' level, and uh, we have a great time doing that. And one of the great joys of that is being able to see God mold and shape the future of our church. And uh, I'm glad with, that I get to have a small part in that. So one of the things we've been able to teach the kids through, um, especially during this study of Mark lately, is each of the four Gospels give us a good idea of who Jesus is, what his ministry was about, and what his time on this earth was like, at least what was recorded. Uh, but in order to get a whole picture, you really need to look at all four Gospels. So think of it like this. If you're a police officer, you come up to the scene of a, an automobile accident, and there's four eyewitnesses. In order to get the whole story, you need to look at the story of all four eyewitnesses. And so it is with the, with the scripture. When you want to find out everything you need to know about Jesus, you need to look at all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not only are they uh, biblical books, they're also historical records accepted by scholars, archaeologists, and so forth. And they tell us a lot about Jesus, about his ministry, and everything else related to that. So, our view, uh, to get a full view of Jesus, we really need to look at all four Gospels. 
to get a full view of the world around us, our reasons for being here, and the meaning of life, we need to expand that further into getting a whole view of the Bible. We cannot begin to understand any of the things uh, that I just talked about without a thorough understanding of God found in the writings of the approximate 40 authors that made the 66 books that make up our Bible. Amen? So I'm telling you this in hopes of re-emphasizing my need, your need, our collective need to understand the whole counsel of God, and that's going to come through this message, I believe. That'll be one of the things we get through this. Because if we're to be missionaries in our everyday lives and engage in the Great Commission, we need to properly understand what our mission is, who our head is, and why he sent us on this mission. So, <clears throat> a proper understanding can be reached through a combination of regular prayer, as well as regular studying and reading of the Scripture. And I would suggest you do that both on your own, in your own time, and as a group. And that's why John mentioned it's important for you to join a small group, including one of our Sunday school classes. Because growing in faith while also growing in community with others is one of the best things you can do to spur on further growth as a believer. And that's why we encourage that. Okay, so looking at our scripture today, we're first going to look at verses 27 to 30. We're going to start about halfway through verse 27. It says, on the way he, that's meaning Jesus, asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist was one of them. Another said, Elijah. Others said, one of the prophets. And he asked, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So this is a great interaction between Jesus and his disciples. According to the Broadman Bible Commentary, this section of Scripture, especially where Jesus is called the Christ, that is the climax, the culmination, the crescendo of the first half of Mark's Gospel. We can also see that after trying over and over and over to get the truth into the heads of the disciples, they finally get it. Well, almost, as we'll see. There are accounts of this same story in Luke chapter 9 and Matthew 16. And like I told you earlier, when you look at all the different, uh, we'll call them eyewitnesses, because this, this was written by eyewitnesses or people that talked to eyewitnesses. When we look at all of them, we'll be able to get a full view of what was going on here. And so in just a few moments, we're going to look at Matthew's account, um, which is chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. So I'm going to read that. And I do have quite a bit of uh, cross-reference today, so just have your pens or your fingers handy to make your notes. It says, starting in verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is very important, by the way. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against... Oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry, I jumped down. My Father who is in heaven, now starting verse 18. I apologize for doing that. I'm just a little excited today. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth 
shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So this version of events found in Matthew is sometimes uh, taken out of context or misunderstood. And so I wanted to specifically share this today so that we could try to clear up some things. So when Jesus says the rock in this particular piece of scripture, he's not saying that Peter is the rock that the church is built on, nor any other apostle. The rock that the church is built on is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because remember this, the apostles, are they still around anymore? No, they're long dead, just like the rest of us will be one day until the Lord comes back. But Jesus, is he still around? Yes, he is. Without the apostles who started the church, there is still a church because we're part of it today. Without Jesus, there is no church. Therefore, Jesus is the rock that the church is built upon. Something else I want to show is that when Jesus gives the apostles, or he says he's going to give them the keys to the kingdom of heaven to bind and loose, he's not talking about a secret teaching or superpower. Now, to be sure, the apostles do some extraordinary things that a lot of other people will never get to do. But uh, that was because God was using them to start and build the church after he left and sent the Holy Spirit to be in his place. Anyway, Jesus is going to give them a proper and full understanding of the scripture that will allow them to teach, to preach, and to start the early church. And of course, this will not be fully realized until Christ is risen and the Holy Spirit is sent as our helper. But it is my belief through study and through talking with uh, some of the other guys, that that is what he means by giving them keys to bind and loose. It's a proper understanding of the scripture that can be disseminated down to even you and I today. So I point all this out because I know that these scriptures have been taken out of context at times, and again, that's what happens when you don't consider the whole of scripture. And while that's very hard to do on your own, you can't really do it unless you're a believer, unless you're praying, and the Holy Spirit is helping you understand all this. Um, because trust me, I'm not this smart. This is just things that I know that God has revealed to me too through my study. And I know the same is, is for many of you. But anyway, when you take things out of context, it results in false teaching, which also diminishes God's intended purpose for our Savior and for the church. So getting back to Mark, Jesus tells the disciples to tell no one that he's the Christ, which we'll discuss further in just a bit. All right, so... Let's go now to Mark 8, 31 to 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. This seems pretty crazy when you consider what we've learned, uh, especially in Matthew's account of the story, because we get a little more detail. Peter calls Jesus the Christ, and Jesus declares that Peter received that from the Father. That's an awesome thing, right? That was the crescendo of the first uh, part of Matthew's, or excuse me, Mark's gospel. Anyway, Peter then rebukes Jesus for talking about his pending death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, God's plan to save the entirety of the universe. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and Satan at the same time. 
I think that deserves a wow. So all at the same time, let's say wow. Wow. Okay. I don't know about you, but I can relate to Peter and the other disciples, especially when they really mess up. And uh, again, something we'll talk about later is that that actually gives me hope for myself and for uh, the rest of us. But first of all, there were probably a misunderstanding of what the Messiah meant to the first century Jew and what it actually meant when you understood God's whole plan for everything. And uh, those first century Jews that were mistaken included the disciples. So let's insert a mental note right here. This is probably one of the main reasons Jesus told them not to tell anyone he was the Messiah, because there was some misunderstanding. So Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man in this passage. And that's a title associated with a mysterious figure in Daniel 7. And we know that in that particular prophecy, that is referring to the Son of God. Or, in other words, to God the Son before he was incarnated. Before he was fully God and fully man when he was fully God only at that time. And of course, that would, man would become Jesus. So let's read Daniel seven thirteen to 14. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's where the title comes from. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So let's think about this for a moment before I finish with verse 14. We've got this figure called the son of man, which represents God the son. And then we've got the ancient of days that represents the father. They are together in God's throne room. Verse 14, and to him was given, and this is meaning to the son of man, You'll see why we know this is Jesus, because listen to this. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That sounds like a conquering king, right? And one day, that's who Jesus is going to be. He's going to fulfill the role of the Son of Man, the conquering king, and that's also why he called himself the Son of Man over and over in the Gospels. So were the disciples right to believe that Jesus is the Son of Man and the Messiah? Yes, they are. However, they weren't also counting on him first becoming the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They weren't counting on that. And that's why Peter rebuked Jesus because he started talking about the kind of suffering he was going to go through. Peter was like, hold on now, I, I know everything, which... Like the rest of us, Peter did not know everything, but uh, he got carried away with himself. Anyway, let's look at Isaiah 53, 3 through 5. And remember, to first, before he can become the, the uh, sorry, son of man who conquers and has a kingdom, he first has to be the suffering servant found in Isaiah 53. It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him not. Stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Does that sound like Jesus before his cross? Yeah. He was despised, he was rejected, he was beaten, he was battered and bruised. And then, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Remember his side was pierced. At the end of his resurrection, uh, I mean, not his resurrection, his uh, time on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was battered and bruised, like I said already. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus went through a terrible, torturous death, and it was even torturous uh, going up to the time of death. And he did that because he was the only one that could pay the price that he paid. So that by paying the penalty for our own sins, past, present, and future, um, we could be in a right relationship with God again. That's why Jesus did that, and Isaiah prophesied this would happen to Jesus uh, 700 years or more before he was even born. So, were Peter or any of the other disciples ready to hear that their conquering Messiah would first conquer by becoming the suffering servant? No, they weren't ready to hear that. They wanted somebody to rescue them and conquer right then. But there's something else worth pointing out that I came across in my preparations that I want to share with you. This appears to be the second time that Jesus was also tempted by Satan to compromise. So let's think about that for a moment. He was already tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And we can find that in Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11. So I'll read that to you quickly. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. In that moment, on that high peak, looking at all the kingdoms of the world that they could see, Satan was trying to get Jesus to compromise the plan of God, which was for Jesus to live and act out the role of the suffering servant and then be resurrected um, after, after his death. But Satan did tempt Jesus, and Jesus got rid of Satan, told him to be gone. And going back to Matthew 8, 33, Jesus is actually rebuking Satan for using Peter to tempt him a second time, and he's also rebuking his disciples, especially Peter, for suggesting such a thing as compromise or changing God's plans. Since Peter didn't have the whole of God's story in mind, I don't think he fully understood what he was really suggesting. That's just my opinion. Uh, but he was suggesting that Jesus sabotage God's plan for humanity and the entire universe. However, he was bold enough to suggest something uh, like that, and he was suggesting that Jesus compromise, and that's something that we all face. But remember this, there's no compromise to God and his plans, and there can be no compromise in how we live the gospel. So let's look at verses 34 to 30, uh, 38. We're going to start about halfway through verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So think about this. Jesus is telling his true believers in order to follow him, they must be willing to give up everything. Their wants, their desires, their dreams, and be marked as someone under the authority of Jesus Christ. According to one of my commentaries, take up his cross must have been very puzzling and even offensive to the people who were listening to Jesus at that time. Because remember, execution through crucifixion was a public execution. 
whoever was around and wanted to watch could see. And so they knew that the cross represented something very, very tough. Uh, a Bible scholar named Barbieri notes that when criminals carried their crosses, it showed those who were watching the identity of the one who had authority over that person. So by denying oneself, taking up one's cross, and following Jesus, a disciple acknowledges that he's submitting under Jesus' authority. Okay? The people watching criminals carry their crosses at the time to the site of execution have no doubt who's in authority over that person. At that time, it would have been the Roman government. In the same way that those criminals were under the authority of the Roman government, people should be able to see that a believer is totally under the authority of Jesus Christ. And uh, Luke 9.23, I wanted to share that with you real quick because Luke describes this in even more explicit language in his version of these events. Verse 23 says this, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, not once, not once a year, once a month, or anything like that. It is something that they take up daily and follow Jesus. So following Jesus is a daily activity, not a one-time thing. Amen? All right. Verse 36 says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. These last few verses can seem downright depressing, especially when considering that we live in such a prosperous nation. Um, even with the economic downturn and what have you, um, we are doing so much better than a lot of folks in other countries. So consider this. Even the wealthiest of men could never be satisfied, even if they actually did gain the whole world. They're still chasing something that is fleeting because whether it's life, whether it's wealth, power, or anything else you could think of, Everything in this life, in this universe, is eventually going to run out and fade. And this reminded me of something, um, I know it's going to seem probably a little nerdy, but some of you might know this, I'm sure some of you do. And I'm not going to say this in the scientific words, I'm going to break it down to something simple that someone like me could understand. But have you ever heard of the second law of thermodynamics? Anybody? Yep, Tommy has, John has, very good. I'm in good company. All right. It's a good example of what we're talking about. And it says, if things remain the same, the universe is eventually going to run out of energy. So in other words, at the very beginning, the universe had a certain amount of energy. There's no more energy coming in from an outside source. We know that outside source would be God. But if things don't change, eventually, just like the rest of us, and I'll say just like myself, the universe is getting older and colder every day and one day, Everything is going to die because there's no more heat. So even if you were to gain the whole world, long life and all of that, it's still fleeting and is going to end one day apart from Christ. So there's no happy ever after. There's no happy ending. There's nothing good apart from God. There's only death. So chasing after all those things uh, will always prove to be a losing proposition especially when you've been introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth it brings to us. Romans 8, 22 to 23 say this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So what Paul is saying there is everything in creation is waiting because we all know that while this universe we live in, this world we live in, these bodies we live in are amazing and great, something's not quite right. And Paul is telling us even the universe itself understands that because things just aren't as they should be from the way God made them in the beginning. Mark 13, 31 also reiterates this by telling us heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And again, I share that with you to help you think about this. Apart from God, there's nothing you can chase after that will forever satisfy you. Everything is fleeting apart from Christ. So rather than chasing even somewhat long-term temporal gain, will never satisfy you in comparison to a life spent in service to our King, Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. So looking back at our first four verses, we don't have to put them on the screen, but in those four verses, we see that Jesus Christ and his gospel, his birth, his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, those things are what the entirety of our faith is built upon. Since the church is made up entirely of fallen, fallible people, you will never find a perfect church. And if you look around, you'll know that's true. And uh, that's just how it is. So rather than that, we, Sale Street Baptist Church, want to be known as a church that shares the gospel and, with the Holy Spirit's help, the two greatest commandments. And I believe you know what these are, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. We're going to look at Matthew 22, 37 to 40. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if we can follow these two commandments the way Christ intends, we can't help but do things like this. Study the scripture. Pray regularly. Share the gospel that leads to salvation with our lost and dying neighbors all around us. And we will also continue to grow in our love of and in service to our king and our fellow man. And that's what God has called us to do. So remember this, we get to share and serve others in service to our king. However, if we don't like God's plan or uh, we think we know better, God will have his way no matter what, with or without us. So we must be vigilant in pursuing his will, his way, and not doing things through our own means. And that's tough to do sometimes. But while we're not Old Testament Jews living in the city of Susa, I do think we can take uh, something from what Mordecai told Esther, just as a place of encouragement if you are not sure where you fit in right now. Esther 4, 14, second half of the verse says this, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Christian, believer, if God has brought you to this congregation and you're not quite sure where you fit in, my call to you is this. Know that you are not here by happenstance. So let's prayerfully consider and work together in finding out where you best fit in in this local body because we have lots of places uh, we can help you figure that out and figure out where you need to go. And don't make Peter's mistake. Rebuking Jesus for wanting to fulfill God's plan is like asking for God's okay to compromise his whole plan and his whole will. And there's no room for compromising God's plan of salvation. Peter didn't fully realize what he was talking to Jesus about, but he fell for the temptation to compromise. 
And so my charge to each and every one of us is this, and I'm including myself. If you have compromised the gospel of salvation, which is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, you need to repent. You need to ask God to help you repent and turn away from that. If you've compromised the gospel in witnessing to others, what do you need to do? You need to repent. If you're tempted to compromise the gospel in witnessing to others, seek the Holy Spirit's help for strength and courage and continue to grow in community with other believers that will also help encourage you in the same way. Because there is no compromise with God. There is only the truth of Jesus Christ. John 14, 5 through 6 says this. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Remember, the rest of the world is fleeting. It's not going to last forever. The only true thing we can hold on to for our lifetimes and even beyond is Jesus Christ. In Mark 8, 34 through 38, we know that following Jesus will cost us everything. We're not preaching the cheap, easy gospel. There is a cost to serving God, and it has to be counted. So if we ever feel like we're getting a raw deal, and sometimes our feelings are going to make us feel that way, but remember, they're fallen and fallible just like we are. So sometimes our feelings are going to lie to us. So when that happens, keep this in mind. God the Father was willing to send his son to earth, knowing he would have to pay the ultimate price, so that lawbreakers and sinners like me and like you could be made in right relationship with God. So whenever we count the cost, we have to note that God paid the ultimate price, and he paid a price that we could not even try to pay, and he did it out of his love for his creation. So whatever the cost is on our end, it's worth it. And come what may, we get to live with our Lord, our Master, our Savior in heaven, and we also get to be there with all believers, past, present, and future. And we're going to read about that in a few moments as we uh, get ready to close. So if we're not truly willing to forsake all for Jesus, we need to ask ourselves if Jesus is really our Lord and Savior or are we mostly trying to escape punishment in hell? Because there is a difference there. And remember, the Christian life isn't something we can live and fulfill on our own. It all comes through the grace given to us by the very one who wants to be our salvation. Colossians 2, 6 through 7 say, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And band can come forward. Um, I just want to remind us that we should be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ because, again, everything else is fleeting, failing. It's going to fall short one day. Jesus Christ never will fail us. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 18 say, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So I want to ask you to embrace the cross of Christ, because it's only through the cross that we can truly live the way that our Savior desires us to. And while it does seem folly sometimes, uh, that's just because we don't fully understand God's plans sometimes in uh, that's why we have to stay really tied in with our church family, studying the scripture, and trusting in the one who has provided salvation for us.
The cross was the only option for mankind. So rather than being disheartened about all this, we should be very hopeful. While the cross may not always make sense, it didn't make sense to the disciples either. Because remember, Jesus described everything that was going to happen, and then he got fussed at by Peter, which was a big mistake. But you know what? Those disciples make me hopeful because I mess up a lot. I sin a lot, and I never uh, make the mark a lot of times. And because I know Jesus was able to use them, I know he can use me, I know he can use all of us. And I also know that we can make it because of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And I just want you to think about this, because I know there's things like cancer and sickness and disease and old age and all kind of other terrible things that happen in this world. But remember, it's fleeting, it's not going to last forever. So I want to read to you in Revelation chapter 21 what it's going to be like to be with other believers, to be with our Savior, and to be with our Father. Starting at verse 22 of chapter 21 of Revelation. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and light will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign not a long time, not a short time, but forever and ever. So while following Christ may seem like an insurmountable task, the hard part's already been taken care of by God through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So remember this as we close in prayer. Serving Jesus is worth whatever the cost. And my prayer is, if you're not a Christian, that the Holy Spirit has stirred your heart and will bring you to the point of asking Jesus to be your Lord, Master, and Savior. Or to at least start asking questions about that so that we can walk beside you and hopefully you will make the choice to become a believer. If you are a Christian, my prayer is that you would be encouraged to continue serving your King or even serving Him in a more meaningful way knowing that he counted the cost to himself before sending Jesus to pay the ransom for our sins, just so we could become children of God. And uh, as we uh, begin singing again, I'll be up front, and if, if some of our other elders will be up front, and if you need anything, you need to talk, pray, or God has stirred your heart in any way, please come down and let us talk together and pray. Okay? Amen.